Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. In our last episode, part one of The Con Man Killer, we left off with FBI agent John Grusing and Lafayette detective Gary Thatcher teaming up to catch one of their own FBI informants now in hiding. With their combined resources, they now suspected Scott Kimball of fraud, attempted murder, and had linked him to at least three missing persons. It was becoming increasingly clear that anyone who gets too close to this man is in terrible danger. While Scott was on the run, he kept in contact with Lori, telling her it was all a misunderstanding and he was hiding out in Alaska until it could all be sorted out. She held on to all of his stuff just in case, but when the investigators visited her again, she handed it all over to them. Lori had kept everything, random papers, his computer, literally everything. Agent John and Detective Gary started with Scott's computer and were disgusted by the hundreds of photos and videos of women being raped, tortured, and even murdered. Most they were able to track back to dark porn sites, but then they came across a photo of a young woman with dark hair that appeared to have been taken by Scott himself. They were able to identify her as Leanne Emery and contacted her parents. On October 30th of 2007, Agent John called Howard Emery and asked to speak with Leanne about a possible suspect in an ongoing homicide investigation. Howard explained to Agent John that through his own investigation, he had learned that Leanne had been introduced to a man who called himself Hannibal. According to what he had found, it seemed like this Hannibal person had befriended Leanne and convinced her to write a series of bad checks and misuse her credit card. The activity continued all the way up until the time her car was found abandoned in the Moab desert. They confirmed the photo on Scott's computer was in fact Leanne, but found out she had been blonde when she had disappeared. It was as if Scott had convinced her to change her appearance and go on the run for some reason. As a skilled con man, the investigators assumed he had made up some story of Leanne being in danger and needing his help as an FBI agent to help her go into hiding. Okay, so it's not all about money for Scott. It sounds like he gets some kind of twisted sexual pleasure from the idea of hurting women. Leanne was the missing piece of the puzzle. Now maybe they can actually put a case together against him. Yeah, he definitely had some dark fantasies he wanted to live out. And it sounds like he abused his FBI agent power to make these girls think he's on their side. Oh, absolutely. What did they discover about his time with Leanne? Agent John and Detective Gary were successfully able to trace Scott and Leanne's movements while they had been together. Using motel receipts, phone records, credit card receipts, and check records, they determined that they were in the Denver area from January 1st to January 16th of 2003. And then they were in the states of Oregon and Washington from January 17th to January 19th, and in Wyoming from January 24th to January 25th. They even discovered that Leanne had purchased Scott's laptop for him at a Best Buy on January 10th of 2003. They realized that Scott had convinced her to help him launder money, and when he had no use for her, he likely killed her. Scott was still on the run, but eventually he slipped up and they were able to track his phone to Palm Springs, California. They moved in and Scott led them on a dramatic high-speed chase through the streets of Coachella Valley area before he was finally stopped and arrested. Next began the most complex cat-and-mouse game of their careers as Agent John and Detective Gary started interrogating Scott. 
The only thing they could prove at this time was the check fraud. So along with prosecutor Katarina, they hatched a plan to charge him as a habitual criminal to get him a longer sentence. He was convicted and sentenced to 48 years for fraud in 2008, but they weren't done with him yet. They wanted him convicted as the murderer they were sure he was. Finally, they have him behind bars. He was out there terrorizing people for six years once they let him out to make him an informant. This should happen in all cases. If you catch a guy and you believe that he murdered someone, find a way to keep them behind bars until you can prove it. I don't care if it's an overdue parking ticket. (laughs) Did he confess or did he continue to play games? Scott stuck to his story that he had nothing to do with those missing people. They continued to interrogate him for hours, but he consistently played dumb and denied everything. Scott was an expert at coming up with convincing stories, and the investigators had to fact-check everything he said. The easiest to check was the story about Uncle Terry. They checked the lottery winner records and confronted Scott with the evidence that Terry had never won the lottery. Faced with facts he couldn't lie his way out of, his facade started to crack. He admitted to killing his Uncle Terry for the money Terry carried around in his briefcase. Scott continued to deny murdering the girls, but he mused out loud that federal prison is more comfortable than state prison. That's when he dropped the first big clue. He asked the investigators if he would be moved to a federal prison if one of the girls had died on federal land. He insisted that one girl had died of a drug overdose in the National Forest in Colorado. That statement sparked a memory for Agent John of the receipt he had found in Scott's belongings given to them by Lori. It was a receipt for a camping pass for the weekend Casey disappeared up in the Roosevelt National Forest. The problem was the forest is huge and they had no idea where to look. Agent John called the Federal Forest Rangers and asked for a detailed map of the area, and they told him that they would only give it to him for $8. Exasperated, he explained that even $8 requires an insane amount of paperwork and red tape at the FBI. They refused to give him one for free, so he changed tactics and asked if they had found any unidentified bodies in the last few years. As a matter of fact, they had. Just last September, a hunter came across a human skull. An $8 map? Seriously? (laughs) I wonder why he admitted to Uncle Terry's murder, but still made up stories about the women. Right. Why wouldn't they just give him the map? It's for an investigation. Maybe he thought killing a grown man would make him less of a monster than admitting to killing younger women. Maybe. Or maybe Uncle Terry was just about the money and the women were personal fantasies he didn't want to share. That also sounds believable. (laughs) Why does the Roosevelt National Forest sound familiar to me? Anyway, were they able to confirm the identity of the body? In April of 2008, a DNA test confirmed that the skull belonged to Casey, Lori and Rob were devastated, but also relieved to finally bring their daughter home, at least in some way after all these years. Lori had another level of grief to deal with, though. This was concrete proof of what Scott had done. She not only brought Scott into Casey's life, but she unknowingly married the man who only months before murdered her baby. Even worse, that monster had taken her to the very camping spot where he killed Casey for their honeymoon. She was still too worried about her missing daughter at the time to think anything of him taking off on an ATV without her. But looking back, she realized he had been going to check on Casey's body during their honeymoon. She had been less than 100 yards away from her daughter and had no idea. 
Lori now believes Scott planted the drugs in order to drive a wedge between her and Casey so he could get to her more easily. And she had fallen for his scam exactly how he wanted her to. Oh my god, that's right! What a sick monster to take Lori to the site of her daughter's murder for their honeymoon. And of course, he just couldn't help himself and he had to go admire his handiwork. That's so twisted, and it makes me wonder if he also had plans to hurt Lori there, and for some reason just decided not to? I think she was too willing to believe anything he told her. He could get away with anything married to her. What about the other missing people linked to him? With the conclusion of one of the four missing people linked to him, the investigators knew they would have to negotiate in order to get the rest. He went to expert lengths to conceal the bodies, and he truly believed they would never be found. Unfortunately, based on the remote area Casey's body was left, without his help, the bodies may actually never be found. They offered Scott a deal that they wouldn't charge him with first-degree murder if he showed them where all the bodies were, which removed the threat of the death penalty. They would agree to allow him to plead guilty to second-degree murder and only sentence him to 28 years in prison. He restated that he didn't kill any of the girls himself, but he would take them to the bodies and agree to the deal. In February of 2009, a team of agents and forensic specialists accompanied Agent John, Detective Gary, and Prosecutor Katarina as they took Scott out to search for the bodies. A parade of nine big black government SUVs with tinted windows caused a stir driving through the streets of Colorado. Scott loved the attention the caravan caused. He sat there smugly smiling out the window as people stared and gawked, like he was some celebrity or something. No one knew it was a serial killer in one of those SUVs. The natural first thought is maybe the recently elected President Barack Obama was in town, or maybe a big celebrity is shooting a movie in Colorado. The fanfare went straight to Scott's head. When they arrived at the remote canyons of the eastern Utah to search for Leanne's body, Scott started bossing the agents around as if he was running the operation. He demanded helicopters and ground-penetrating radar and smiled like he was on a fun adventure the entire time. He had always enjoyed playing FBI agent, and this was the best role he'd gotten to play yet. In his mind, these search parties were all about him, and he loved the attention and control he had over each search effort. Ugh, that's disgusting. A normal person would feel shame or remorse, but no, he enjoyed every minute of it. He's the type of serial killer that has a bunch of ill-minded women riding him behind bars, and he just soaks that shit up. Uh, Seriously, it makes me feel sick. Did he at least lead them to the bodies then? He led them all over those desert cliffs, excitingly calling out, this is it, and instructing the team to dig. When they would find nothing, he led to a new spot and on and on. This went on for four days. Everyone except Scott was getting discouraged and knew he was just playing with them. Then on the fourth day, searching for Leanne, Agent John noticed Scott's demeanor change a little. He suddenly seemed slightly nervous and pretended that he had gotten confused and started leading the team in a completely different direction. Suspicious, Agent John let Scott and the team change direction while he hung back. He started looking around in the direction they had been going when Scott got nervous. That's when he spotted a hair clip near some large boulders down a little slope. Agent John called the search team back. Scott looked angry and insisted they were looking in the wrong place and demanded they all come with him to search somewhere else. A couple agents took Scott back to the SUV while the rest of the team recovered Leanne's body. 
With the bones hidden in the big boulders, they found a bullet that matched Scott's gun. They now had absolute proof that Scott had taken Leanne out in the middle of nowhere and shot her in the head, hiding her body under large boulders never to be found. Ironically, Scott's efforts to conceal her body may have been the biggest mistake he made. Leanne's body was protected from the elements and undisturbed, preserving evidence that otherwise may have been lost over time. Go Agent John! Scott clearly didn't mean to lead them in the right direction, and when he realized his mistake, tried to steer them away. But Agent John knew how to play the game. Oh yeah, and Scott ended up protecting her remains instead of finding a way to make her unidentifiable. What an amateur. Right, what an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) He continued to lead them around looking for Jennifer's body, but every spot they dug up came with nothing. Scott insisted he was trying to help, but he had only been there once and it had been dark. He said he remembered she was buried near a creek of some kind, but he seemed to be enjoying making the agents dig for nothing. The investigators didn't believe for a second that he had forgotten where Jennifer was. He had been so methodical and intentional with where he hid his victims, it's unlikely that he would forget her location. Plus, once they found her body, his little outings with the search party would come to an end. While he struggled to remember where Jennifer was buried, he had no such trouble regarding his Uncle Terry. He drew them a map in extreme detail from the memory of exactly where he left Terry. He even described what Terry had been wearing down to the last detail. The place Scott had indicated was way up in the mountains, so they waited for the snow to melt before beginning their search party for Terry. They found the body in the exact spot Scott had indicated. Terry was wrapped in a tarp that was tied with a complex type of knot. He had been shot in the back of the head with a bullet that matched the one found with Leanne's body. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. He drew a detailed map to exactly where he dumped Uncle Terry, but he can't find his way back to Jennifer's body in person? Yeah, right. I lost trust in this man a long time ago, but we know he knew where he hid all those bodies. I do find it weird that he didn't bury them all within the same location. Uncle Terry's body was nowhere near Leanne's. Yeah, he really liked to pick a new location for each body. Okay, wasn't the deal that he had to lead them to all of the bodies? So what did they actually convict him of? We'll be back with Scott's trial after this short break. Because he didn't lead them to Jennifer, he had broken his plea deal, and they were no longer limited to the agreed-upon 28-year sentence. He refused to take full responsibility for killing the women, but pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder regarding Uncle Terry and what he claims was Casey's overdose. On October 8th of 2009, Scott was sentenced to 70 years in prison in addition to the 53 years he was already serving for the fraud and gun charges. Casey's mom and Scott's wife, Lori, addressed Scott, saying she believed Casey would have wanted her to forgive him, so she was letting go of her hate and anger. Lori eventually annulled her marriage to Scott and tried her best to move on with her life. The fathers of Scott's victims, Bob, Howard, and Rob, gave heartbreaking emotional testimonials at the sentencing. With tears of sadness and rage rolling down their faces, they told Scott he was a monster who had taken the people who meant the most to them. Howard, Leanne's dad, would have liked Scott to have been given the death penalty but admitted that some justice is better than no justice. He left it telling the judge, if he can walk on two feet, he will do this again. A father's love for their daughter is a special, powerful thing, 
Multiple law enforcement agencies ignored these missing women, but their fathers never stopped looking. I would not have been as forgiving as Lori. (laughs) And if I was Casey, I would hold a grudge and haunt his ass. (laughs) (laughs) Those dads are the only reason Scott was brought to justice. Lori makes questionable decisions, and maybe she felt the need to forgive him because she shared partial blame in letting this psychopath around her daughter. I'm sure she had to deal with that horrible fact the rest of her life. So what happened after he was sentenced and sent to federal prison? The FBI says that they are still to this day dealing with the fallout from them trusting Scott. They have repeatedly apologized to the families for not taking their missing persons concerns seriously at the beginning. The families are grateful and appreciative for Agent John and Detective Gary, but they remain angry at the system as a whole. Specifically, they blame Agent Carl Sloff, Scott's handler, who they say should have been watching Scott. If he kept a close eye on Scott, he wouldn't have been able to kill these girls. In a recent interview, a spokesman for the FBI, Jim Davis, stated that the FBI cannot constantly monitor its criminal informants. They don't have the resources or the authority to control the informants 24-7. He finished by urging people to remember that this case is a tragedy, but the individual responsible is Scott, not the FBI. Uh, no. The FBI definitely shares some blame on this one. Agent Carl didn't just lose track of his informant. He deliberately ignored evidence brought to him by the family members linking Scott to their disappearances. I'd go as far as to call him an accomplice. Right. Like, this is on you guys as much as it's on Scott at this point. They could have stopped many murders if they had listened the first time. Exactly. What about Jennifer? Did they ever find her? The search for Jennifer continues, and while it's possible she may never be found, Agent John has not let this case slow down. He says he has dedicated himself to bringing Jennifer and any other victims home and won't rest until he has. Agent John believes there are more victims out there. Scott killed these people so efficiently and covered his tracks so thoroughly that they could not have been his first killings. Investigators think there might be as many as 15 to 21 victims. Scott has bragged to other inmates that he has committed dozens of murders. But at his core, he is a con man who has led a life filled with deceit and shady business deals. He continues to officially deny involvement in any other cold cases, but serious links to him are still being made. There is one case that investigators are positive Scott committed. On October 25th of 2004, a 26-year-old woman was found beat to death near a dumpster behind a strip mall and apartment complex. She was naked with no identification found nearby, and her hands had been removed. Police released a composite sketch of the woman, and her sister-in-law came forward immediately. Her name was Katrina Powell. She had been a free spirit, fun-loving, and friendly, but she had struggles with drug addiction and had turned to prostitution to survive. Her sister-in-law says she had a tattoo that said Lil Powell on her left hand, and her killer may have removed her hands to make it harder to identify her. The police had no suspects until Agent John called and told them about Scott. A letter had been found in Scott's cell in his handwriting saying that he had killed a prostitute and left her in someone's backyard. Agent John looked for cold cases it might be referring to and came up with Katrina's case. The lead detective, Bernard Von Feld, interviewed Scott regarding the case and was shocked and suspicious when Scott denied killing her, but claimed his current cellmate had killed her and cut off her hands. 
They hadn't told him those details of this case, and with his history of blaming his cellmates, it made him a serious suspect. They gave him a polygraph test about her murder, and he failed. They have gathered substantial circumstantial evidence linking Scott to Katrina's murder, but no charges have been filed as of yet. It's believed that investigators are just making sure they dot their I's and cross their T's before filing. I wouldn't want to be this guy's cellmate, man. (laughs) No, seriously. (laughs) Possibly 15 to 21 murders. That's insane. I mean, it sounds like he attacked his cellmates in a different manner by making up elaborate lies about them to get out early. (laughs) Are there any other cases officially linked to Scott? Utah authorities are reviving a 1998 cold case they say may also be connected to Scott. On April 20th of 1998, a body was discovered off the side of a highway in Utah. The body was wrapped in multiple layers, including plastic, duct tape, a sleeping bag, rope, and a kid's play carpet. The State Bureau of Investigation, Agent Brian Davis, says they are all still trying to identify the woman that they say was known as the Maiden Water Victim. Her body was not decomposed, but they weren't able to get any fingerprints. DNA indicates she is of either Native American or Hispanic descent. She had brown hair and brown eyes. She would have been 5 feet tall, 112 pounds, and was between 37 and 45 years old. They are hoping that with the technology advances, they can identify her and link Scott definitively to her murder. So far, what they have is circumstantial. They are roughly able to put Scott in that area at the time of the murder, and he would have been familiar with a section of the highway based on where he lived and worked at the time. The biggest clues leading to Scott are in how her body was wrapped. The complicated knots tying the ropes around her body were identical to the knots tied around Uncle Terry's body. Then there is the kid's play rug she was wrapped in. Investigators showed a picture of it to one of Scott's sons, who confirmed that he had one just like it when he was five that was mysteriously gone one day, which matches with the timeline of the murder. They are still hoping to identify her and bring her loved one some closure after all these years. Uh, The knots and the rug are enough for me. If only they knew who she was, they could probably connect her to him too. I mean, he's human, and humans often repeat things that are the most efficient to them. Scott's was the knots, and those knots would become his undoing. He probably wasn't even thinking about that. Exactly. And in 1998, he might have been a little less experienced too, so more likely to make some mistakes. Like, you know, using a rug that can be traced back to his kid. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing he hasn't had a come-to-Jesus moment in prison and changed his ways. Scott hasn't changed a bit and is still running scams whenever he can. In 2017, he organized an elaborate escape with another inmate, which involved a helicopter picking them up within the prison yard. The FBI got wind of this plan and put a stop to it, but he was still being charged with attempting to escape. He also sells signed handmade cards online for $69 a pop. (laughs) The real heroes of this story are definitely the fathers that refuse to let law enforcement brush off their little girls. Casey's dad, Rob, still cries every Christmas missing his daughter. He has continued on to live a happy life, but says Casey is a shadow that goes with him through every minute of his life. Leanne's dad, Howard, requested to be taken to the place her body was found. He took a headstone with him and had a small funeral for her at the site. He wanted to change the place from the site of her murder to a memorial site in her honor. He thinks of her every day, but does his best to continue living the best he can. 
Jennifer's dad, Bob, however, didn't get the closure he so desperately needed. Jennifer still missing has taken over his entire life. The only comfort he says he has is the belief that Jennifer died so that Scott Kimball could get caught and be prevented from killing anybody else. Those poor dads, especially Jennifer's dad, who still doesn't have the closure of knowing where her body is. Scott is behind bars for the rest of his life, but what he did is still torturing these families. Honestly, the dads are the real superheroes in this tragic story. They went above and beyond to let everyone know that their daughter's lives mattered. Agreed. Well, that was a crazy roller coaster of a case. Anything else we should know? Like maybe something a little more positive? Well, an interesting twist in this case involves two of the key investigators. This case consumed the life of Detective Gary and Prosecutor Katarina. Their obsession with getting justice for these victims and the secondary trauma that comes with cases like this took a serious toll on their relationships with their families. It led to divorce for both of them while the case was still being investigated. They worked closely together during the investigation and bonded over their divorces. After the case was over, they started dating and eventually got married. So for these two, a little good came out of something so horrible. Scott will likely never be a free man again, but those fathers will still never get to hug their baby girls again. There are potentially dozens of other women Scott stole from their families that have yet to be identified or connected. Scott would not have stopped on his own. Without the determination of these three fathers, countless more would have suffered at the hands of this monster. If you take anything away from this case, let it be to never stop looking out for the people you love. This time, we aren't going to direct you to a related organization. We are asking you to help us find anyone who might have information that can help identify the woman being referred to as the Maiden Water Victim. As Sham mentioned, she was murdered in April 1998 and found on the side of SR-276 Mile Post 8, approximately 38 miles north of Lake Powell, Utah. She was 5 feet 0 inches tall, 112 pounds, brown eyes, brown hair, has a mole on the top of her right ear. She had what appeared to be tattooed eyebrows and good dental work. You can go to our website to see the composite sketch released by the Utah police. If you have any information about this case or the identity of the victim, please call DPS Dispatch at 801-887-3800 and please share this with everyone you can. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Contra Podcast for our question of the week. If you like our podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even better, leave us a voicemail, which just might get featured on the show. You can find the link on our website. Sham, what's our Conjure Tip of the Week? This week's Stone Sardonyx is in the same family as last week's Stone Carnelian. Sardonyx has been used as a stone of strength and protection since ancient times. It's associated with courage, happiness, and clear understanding. In fact, they are said to have such an incredible strength that many people suggest the stone to be used with caution to avoid overwhelming others. Wear sardonyx when you need to unleash your inner power. 
Wow, I might have to get some of that. Everyone needs to unleash their inner power every now and then. <laughs> we'll be back next week with another episode. Until, Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.